newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis on the news media issues of the week, and we hope to bring you some insight as well from our perches here up in the great Northeast. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, here with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, and Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. Today, we're going to try to talk about something that none of us really knows much about. Why is this day different from any other day, you may ask? No, we have a lot to talk about concerning cable TV news. There's a provocative point that's been raised that Dr. Shartok, I'd like to have you address first, and we'll all get to this. It's from a writer in Columbia Journalism Review saying that the panel discussion format, which predominates on cable, needs to be gone, that it's done. Is that right? Why does it exist, and what can you do about it? Yeah, we here on the Media Project panel understand this all too well. (laughs) There's a little sarcasm there. No, I mean, it's obviously an easy way for them to keep things flowing. We have the panel in the morning on WAMC, uh, the roundtable panel, and it works extremely well. And we have a huge audience as a result of it. So, you know, people need a column. The media critics need to say something, so they say it. The question always becomes, what would you replace it with? Joe Scarborough talking to Brzezinski? Is that how it would work? Two people just doing that? And this way, they're able to get all kinds of interesting people. Some of them are great. As we speak today, they had Mr. Blow from the New York Times. Is it Charles Blow from the New York Times talking about his new book? Very interesting stuff. So... I reject out of hand the pomposity of the Columbia Journalism Review, of, of which you, Rex, graduated from Columbia, and I realize where your partisanship lies, but I reject it out of hand. Okay, so Rosemary, you don't suffer the indignity of being connected at all to Columbia University, so you can answer Alan's question, what would you replace it with? Okay, what Jeffrey, is that his name, the guy from uh, NYU? Who Jay. Is the, Jay Rosen, thank you. He's the one who's most attacking us. He's an NYU professor, always has had a lot to say about journalism, not all of it particularly bright. And I read this latest screed about him, thinking, okay, I want to reject it. But he does have some points. And here's the thing. The panel is a cheap way, and it gets great viewership, listenership. And I know this from the roundtable. There are some days when we're just yelling at each other, and that seems to be really popular with people. That's not a good reason to put them on. The difference, I think, is that Joe Donahue thinks about who should be on those panels, and he doesn't pick the most extreme partisan people uh, on any side of the issue. He picks people who have unique experiences or a way of talking that he likes, and he mixes them up, and he's not afraid to get rid of or to, to reduce people who 
who don't work out. Um, CNN, for example, which is the worst offender in my mind, they'll put Corey Lewandowski out. They put Jeffrey Lord on. They put Kelly McEnany on unbelievably numerous times before she took her later job of being an outright spokesman for Trump. Actually, that's what she did on CNN. And Rick Santorum, why is he on anybody's TV station? He's a nothing. These are people who just make extreme statements. They're always the same. And they're there just to provoke and to cause controversy. There's no thinking. There's no thought. So I would say that the panels should not be completely eliminated, but they need to be restructured and they need to be evaluated. And what Rosen, this is right about this, I'm 100% behind this, what they should be replaced with is real reporting, real stories done in depth with production, with pictures, with background. And that, of course, is why it'll never happen, because that takes talented people and it takes money and it takes the dedication to do it, including lawyers, to protect them. Judy, can you uh, add to that notion that it's reporting, though, how to replace it? Yes. Right, because talk is cheap and reporting can be expensive. The networks have decided they're going to fill their time with these panel discussions, which I'm sure these people do get paid well. But one of my problems with them is the sheer volume. They're on all the time. If it was once or twice or three times a day, maybe it would make sense. But you're not getting reporting out of it. And don't tell me there's not enough news in the world because there's a lot of news in the world. What these panels tend to do is regurgitate the same narrative over and over again, you know, hour after hour until people have to turn away. But it has been effective. I think it's one of those things where the cable news stations or networks found that it did make money and then they've just done too much of it. One of the other points that Rosen makes is it normalizes these outrageous behavior. There's an insurrection at the Capitol and they have a panel discussion about it. No, CNN needs to do what CNN has always done best is to cover breaking news with real reporters. Whenever I listen to one of these panels, I always found the most interesting person is the reporter. I know that's my bias, but that's where I'm coming from. And what do you think, Rex? Well, I agree with the notion that it's all about the money, of course, uh, which I think you've all said. The maligned writer, I might add, of the article in Columbia Journalism Review, Alan, a woman named Arianna Perry, who used to work in public broadcasting and MSNBC, said it's a cheap news gimmick that helped drive the polarization and misinformation that fueled the assault in the Capitol. And the result is the loss of fully informed and civil conversation because you've got the extremes. I think Rosemary's point is good. If you're programming extremes, if you're putting on people just because it makes for a good wrestling match, that's not really enlightening as much as it is entertaining. And it's, of course, hard for a news network to choose to be informative as opposed to being entertaining because entertainment is what brings in the advertising dollars. So I don't know that it's going to happen, but the responsible broadcasters, I would think, would be looking for a way out of it, and that would be more reporting. But that's expensive. How do you do that? Where does the money come from? Can I just say that investigative reporting brings in viewers? It's more expensive, yes, but it does bring in viewers. There's an extraordinary piece on YouTube done by Alexander Navalny, the opposition to Vladimir Putin. And he he did a, he emceed it, but his reporters, he set up this investigative unit, did a, a major piece about a palace. Billions of dollars have gone into it, and it's for Putin and his family. And it has gotten 100 million views on YouTube. That's just extraordinary. And so it's not as if the replacement would not substitute eventually for the viewership that they have now. It might even 
be better. It certainly would increase credibility. But the problem is that first step to say, okay, we're going to drop panels and now we're going to do real reporting. We're going to put the money into that. And who do you see doing that? Who's going to step aside from the ratings battle long enough to make that gap while they start building their, their reporting? You know, you can always hope, I suppose, that some of the not-for-profit investigative newsrooms that have sprung up that are funded by foundations, you might hope that they would partner with these cable news outfits. It would be advantageous for both. You would give a bigger platform to the great investigative reporting, and you would replace the entertainment programming that the panel discussions represent with some real reporting. That would be pretty cool. And if foundations that are now saying they are trying to support American journalism would step in to support that kind of reporting with the notion that it would then be carried on these cable outlets, maybe there's a partial solution to some of this. You know, Rex, I wanted to wait and to say that I think I disagree with the three of you, but that's not unusual. I like CNN, and I like it a lot, and I think that they do a very balanced job. I think they're much worse on the weekends. I think they almost give up, and I think that's true of MSNBC also. But I think CNN does a very credible job, with the exception of Santorum. I think Santorum is there just to show that there is another side and that they're going to count out to the other side and make sure that everybody knows they're doing their best. But he's got a perpetual smirk on his face, and he's not a good guy. A weak voice of the other side. I think that's what he represents. It's the other side, but you get somebody who's not a very forceful advocate and that makes you look balanced, but in fact, you're underscoring your own point. The other thing that can't be underestimated is the impact this has had on the public's perception of network news. A lot of people will watch these forums or these panels and think that's news when actually it's not news. And the blurring of the lines between editorial opinion and fact-based journalism is even more confused in their mind. And when they turn on what they think is a news station and they don't get real news, they get this banter about opinions back and forth with very little news in between. There might be a smattering of news to spark the conversation. Again, that has just eroded the public's understanding of what news is. Yeah, I take I take exact, a, wait, 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 just wait a second, Rex. You may be the, the uh, host of this program, but everybody gets a chance. And I want a chance, which is to basically answer what Judy just said. I think there's lots of discussion of news and news points. That's what these people are doing. Something happens, each of these people checks in, and they say where they're starting. So that's a discussion of news, and I think people know it. Listen, when I watch CNN, Wolf Blitzer go, we have breaking news. And then he'll say something that he read in the New York Times that morning or something that was breaking news an hour before. I mean, there's actually very little news that's being regurgitated. What I'm talking about is having reporters actually report news. Enterprise reporting, we call it. It's, it's actually making things happen. It's actually uh, finding problems and reporting about them. You know, getting the facts straight when something happens is what my old mentor used to call the basic hack minimum. Anybody ought to be able to do that just to report what happened. But if you can actually find injustices, find problems, uncover issues before they fester, that's the value of great journalism. And as Rosemary says, that's expensive. That is hard to come by. And that's what's being sacrificed in the constant panel discussion format. So, I'm going to read you a quote, and you're going to tell me who you think said it and give me a reaction. Here we go. Those outlets that propagate lies to their audience have unleashed insidious and uncontrollable forces that will be with us for years. The sacking of the Capitol is proof positive that what we thought was dangerous is indeed very much so. Okay, so who is it who's calling out those 
outlets that propagate lies. Anybody? It's James <laughs> Murdoch. That's who it is. It's uh, James Murdoch who is saying this. And who do you suppose he's talking about? <laughs> his brother and his father. His brother and his father. That's the problem. James Murdoch is not the one who has anything to do with that outfit. But the quotation came from a column by the inimitable Margaret Sullivan in the Washington Post who is talking about what to do about Fox News, and she labels it a hazard to our democracy. So if that is true, if what James Murdoch has said is true, that it's unleashed insidious and uncontrollable forces, if it is a hazard to our democracy, what can be done? What's the solution? So here's the deal. What we are seeing in the United States of America now is a transference of political power from the small white minority or the large white minority that always had it into the black, brown, Hispanic majority. And they are fighting like devils to keep what they have. Fox is their spokesman. I think the problem here is when you say that when Margaret Sullivan, uh, sorry, Rex, I know how you adore her. But how when somebody says this is what is responsible for all of this, you're really playing with fire because sooner or later, these other people take over and then they say to you, you're responsible and we're going to cut you out from having a say. Ah, which sounds exactly like Rupert Murdoch, who said something different. Here's the other quote from the other Murdoch. For those of us in the media, he said, there is a real challenge to confront a wave of censorship that seeks to silence conversation, to stifle debate, to ultimately stop individuals and societies from realizing their potential. So Mark Allen on the side of Rupert Murdoch, I'll stand with James. Rosemary, where do you come in? <laughs> well, actually, I agree with Allen. This is the price of a free society that even bad speech gets protected. And the real solution is not in the media at all. It's with the populace, the readers and the viewers who have to recognize what's happening. Even the regulation of big tech falls into this whole category. Am I for that? I sure don't like what's happening on Facebook and Twitter right now. But all of the solutions seem so much worse. And they do involve censorship and shutting off speech that's unpopular and yet correct. I think there's a solution that we could find. Judy, do you have any thoughts on what it might be? So there has been some calls for advertiser boycotts, and you've seen some of that. And you've seen some, you know, retribution for the My Pillow guy. People are turning away from pillows, although how many pillows can you buy in a year? But one of the things that gets overlooked oftentimes is the fact that Fox gets an enormous amount of money. In fact, most of it's money from the cable companies on which its network airs. So the only solution you really have is to cut the cable cord, and nobody really wants to do that. I mean, some advertiser boycotts can have some effect, but I agree that what you have to do is convince people that that's not a great channel to watch because you're not going to reform them from within. I think you're onto something, though. The cable cutting is, I think, going to make a difference. But I think you're understating what the value of the advertiser boycott could be. You know, the 147 Republican members of Congress, the House and the Senate, who opposed certifying the presidential election, who stood against democracy, have lost a lot of their corporate backers. That will affect their behavior, you would think. What about the advertisers on Fox News who are there constantly? What about if consumers who were concerned about this impact on democracy started to make it very plain to those corporations that are supporting Fox that that support has a 
negative effect on our society. I think that is consumer pressure, and I'm not talking about government regulation. I certainly don't think that's the case, though I do think reform of Section 230 is a good idea. And I'm not saying that we should have government regulating cable. That certainly wouldn't be the right approach. But I do think that consumers, there needs to be a movement by the American marketplace to penalize those who support this type of really negative, problematic conversation, the kind of conversation on Fox that damages society. And conversation that's continuing to this day. didn't matter the fact that there was an attempted overthrow of the legislative branch. They're still focusing on, you know, other things and trying to divert attention, in large part by focusing on the fact that they're being censored. People are being censored, they say, on Twitter, when in fact they're not being censored on Twitter. I mean, that's the focus, and they're not paying attention to the real news that's happening. But you're already seeing a little bit of that with Fox's losing audience. It's shifting to more information-based networks like CNN. And that's not working out because Fox is responding by switching more and more to the right. (laughs) You talk about consumer response and the market response. Those are related, but they're two different elements. One are the corporations. They are not dropping their sponsorship of Fox because of their worry about the American democracy. They're just waiting to see which way the wind blows. And it's the same way newspapers for years never took seriously a threat from an advertiser to leave because they would say, well, where else are they going to go? And that's what Fox is thinking. Where else are they going to go to get that? massed group of consumers. It is up to people, not up to corporations, to make any kind of difference here. You know, this is a strange time. My fellow liberals are now making comments to me and writing very angry letters. I know you've seen some of them, Rosemary, in which they say we should make the Senate vote anonymously. In other words, we know what the vote will be, but we don't know what our various representatives or senators would be saying. That is extremely strange. And when we start talking about regulating cable and doing all of that, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with what I'm hearing. Well, of course, nobody here is talking about regulating cable, as I think I just said. But I do think, Rosemary, you're a little cynical about the power about American business. I mean, the Business Roundtable, which is made up of the leaders of the largest American corporations, responding, I think, to citizen pressure is saying profit is not the only responsibility of business. That was a shift that they made in statements and in some of the actions they're taking in recent days. I think we are seeing a bit of a movement toward corporate citizenship, toward civic responsibility in some of these major corporations. And if the outrage is significant enough on the part of citizens, if enough people say what we saw in the Capitol on January 6th needs to have a response, and one of the factors causing it is the kind of terrible programming that we've seen, the lies that have been perpetrated by these kinds of outlets, then I think you will see businesses backing away from it. You have a point, Rex. We've seen businesses, the automotive industry is responding to calls against pollution, even in the face of a government under Trump that was willing to let them go. And you certainly see them responding, I think, beginning to respond to demands for cleaner energy and climate control. So it is possible. But again, it depends on a sustained effort by people. And I have to say, I'm discouraged even watching our representatives in government, which between January 6th and now have lost a lot of their outrage over what happened at the Capitol. Is that going to happen with the voters as well? Is there any reason not to think that it will? 
Good question. I think that that partly depends upon whether there are more thoughtful responses, whether, again, there is enough support to encourage the kind of programming that yields a more thoughtful response rather than continuing to foment violence, continuing to encourage the post-truth ecosystem that the likes of Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Maria Bartiromo are really a part of. That's what you've got to fight. That seems to be clear. So, you know, and as Trump fades away, we've got to see what will rise in his absence to see how the cable networks respond to that. You know, and in, in a country where we have so much of the populace who is not focused on politics, it's always been interesting to me that Fox has had such high ratings. But in the scheme of things, it's not as high as The Bachelor or, you know, wrestling every night. So maybe Fox will adjust. But it seems to me at this point watching them, they're doubling down on the inflammatory rhetoric. Somebody just mentioned something that's very important. Judy did as Trump fades away. There is this debate going on that the media should stop talking about Trump because he's gone. And the more you talk about him, the more power he has. I see it exactly the opposite. I think Trump has to be held responsible. I think the media has to do its job and say how close we came to totalitarianism and dictatorship and move that way. And so from that point of view, I think it's extremely important we continue to show what he did. And coming out of this whole mess in the Capitol in early January, we have the same thing now. We have to say that Trump was responsible for it, and we have to keep using his name. I think you're right, Alan. Uh, wait a second. Mine heart. Heart palpitation. You know, uh, it's similar to the call to not name the perpetrators of mass murders. Like that somehow glorifies them. And it's a very noble, well-meaning kind of gesture. But I hope journalists never pay attention to it because their job is accuracy and the pursuit of truth. And what is happening, what Trump has done, is still a huge news story. Kevin McCarthy is on his way down to see him this week. That doesn't mean he's out of government if he's talking to one of the most powerful Republicans still in Washington. Why would we ignore him? We do that at our own peril and at your own peril. It is striking. I got a press release in my inbox from the office of the former president. He's created a whole seal <laughs> with an eagle in the middle, office of the former president, and they're sending out press releases. It's just stunning. There's never been such a thing before. So it's clear that he exercises continuing control, and an analysis by the fine political analyst Bruce Giori was that Trump has about 31 percent of the electorate is solidly with him and will not be shaken, and that he picked up a another 15% from Republicans who are persuadable. So that 31% is significant, and he will therefore be a force that we have to cover. You can't ignore somebody who has the undying support of one-third of the American electorate. You can't. It's not good journalism. But I would like to note that there's more than one former president, so it should be the office of a former president, not a former president. <laughs> Melania has one too, Judy. You could have one for the former first lady too. <laughs> And I'm all for holding everyone to account for what has happened in his presidency, but I don't like to give any more oxygen to the fact that maybe he'll create a third party or maybe he'll do this because I do think that amplifies what he does and increases his standing amongst his supporters. I think ignoring some of the things he's doing is a good way to help him fade away. Okay, finally today, we have to make note of the passing of a cultural icon in, I guess we would say, journalism. That is Larry King. We might ask, what is it that made Larry King a cultural icon? What was his skill? 
Uh, Alan, you want to give us a thought about that? You've been around and watched him longer than any of the rest of us. Well, the one thing I learned long ago was never to say anything bad about a guy who's on the way out. Let me just say he had eight wives or seven, something like that. And let me just say that he didn't do it for me, for whatever it was worth. Now, our own Joe Donahue had a great deal to do with him in the past, and you'd have to ask him. But I do think that, you know, he was a cultural icon. He did speak to a lot of people, and therefore he was important, even if you didn't like him. Larry King got everybody to speak on his show, everybody. And the first thing about reporting is you got to get people to talk to you. He was the king of that, and he deserves credit just for that. But he also had this unique interviewing style. I make my students study it. It goes against the grain of what we normally teach, be prepared, have great questions. He would ask the most stupid softball questions. He once had Seinfeld screaming at him because he said, did your show get canceled when he, you know, was like the number one show and Seinfeld walked away. But the response that he got was so genuine. It was so great that it made for great television. And his interviews feel more like a conversation than with anybody else. And he got Marlon Brando to come on. Frank Sinatra, who is famous for not talking to anybody else, talked to Larry King. Did he ask every question that I would want to ask? No, neither does Joe Donahue. Part of it is a respect for the other person and just a curiosity. He was a terrific interviewer. My favorite moment came when he was interviewing Terry Anderson, who was released after how many years in captivity, the former AP Mideast Bureau chief. Finally had Terry Anderson on the show, and the question he asked him was, what about sex? I don't remember the answer, but I just thought it was such an outrageous question. But, of course, people might be thinking about that. You know, you always hear this person's great. in captivity. They see their dentist. But that's an example. An interviewer who asks what is on people's minds, who gets great tidbits from newsmakers by being himself and making people feel comfortable enough to open up. Well put. <laughs> Okay. With that, we will uh, have to call it a program. And a thoughtful one it's been. We thank you all for being here. Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith in the Times Union with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Must have startled poor old Sadie's Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting-a-ling, ting-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. It's wonderful to represent the show. Now publishers of such interesting people, their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> 